0: Hi readers, welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Charles Yu has been nominated for two Writers Guild of America Awards for his work on the HBO series Westworld. He is also the author of four books, including Interior Chinatown, winner of the 2020 National Book Award. Interior Chinatown is a deeply personal novel about race, pop culture, immigration, assimilation, and escaping the roles we are forced to play. Now let's join Amy Brinker in conversation with Charles Yu.
1: So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about is this book, uh, Interior Chinatown, won the NBA, um, which must have been huge for you. Um, But now that it's been a little bit of time and the paperback is out, I'm wondering, do you have has it changed how you thought about the book has stuff like bubbled up that makes you like rethink some of the things you, you included or didn't include.
2: That's really interesting. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really shocking, uh, because I think even it sounds weird, but even when you publish a book, or at least in my experience so far, it, it doesn't feel like it's, public thing if that makes any sense. I mean, it's public for a little while and then it sort of like, you know, goes into the sea of books. And this just at least for some window of time made it feel like, oh, people are going to be paying attention uh, on a level that I'm not used to. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) I would imagine it'd be especially like you would be used to that since you're a TV writer as well. Does that feel more public? I guess
2: that that's true. Uh, In TV land, it's, yeah, you're right. Uh, It's a very different level of scrutiny. And I guess in a way it matches that, right? I mean, when you're sitting in the room, you think, oh, you know, at a minimum hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people might see this uh, and Reddit or whoever else is gonna analyze it. You know, I've worked on some high profile shows. So sometimes you know that there's a very kind of, you know, dedicated fan base. So there's that level of scrutiny from an audience, you know, I, I haven't personally felt that with a book until this time where I thought, well, maybe it's not going to be millions of people, but, uh, you know, then I just started running through my mind. Like, is there anything in the book (laughs) that I could somehow edit now to make better (laughs) as a whole bunch of people come to it? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it was incredibly like gratifying and weird and shocking. And it just also, you know, as much of an honor as it is, it also just makes you think, Oh, look at all these other nominees, nominees, you know, and finalists. And just think, um, there's so many great books every year. You know, it just feels a little bit like I couldn't believe it, but also, uh, you know, all these other books that I want to read and that I hope other people read as well. So it's just fun to be part of that conversation, you know, to be on the long list and all of that.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. What you're talking about about the scrutiny thing is I guess it's also different because you're in a writing room when you're making TV. So it's, it's not even right. It's not just you who has to answer for everything you say and the scrutiny is shared, (laughs) I guess.
2: That's really true. Yeah. You can like hide behind the show and you know, the big, marketing campaign. And of course, yeah, there's showrunners and there's a whole team. So. But when it's just one name on the cover of the book, then, uh, then you can't hide.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, also novels are just inherently more intimate and personal, I guess, but um, especially this book, which I know took you many years to write this. That you, I think I read in an interview that you were writing this book for five years and at points you were feeling really stuck So I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit.
2: Yeah. Um, It, it took a really long time. It it might even, depending on how you count it, you know, it it was five, six, or maybe even like almost seven years. And, uh, you know, I had points where I wanted to give up, uh, where I did give up, like I um, would just sort of like have a mini meltdown, not a meltdown exactly, just more like a, I don't know what the equivalent of like flipping my desk over and just walk storming out, but except for, yeah, desk, I'd i
1: guess. call that a meltdown. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Figuratively. I guess I didn't flip my desk. My wife had to talk me, talk me back to the desk a couple of times. Like what, you know, get back to work. What are you doing? And, um, I, I just didn't know what I was doing with it for a really long time. So there was the, the first phase where it didn't have the form it has now. It was, actually quite different. Um, it was like a bunch of fables about, um, people coming to a new land. I had this idea that, um, I would tell a kind of magical realist story about assimilating to a new culture and, and, um, society. And I just couldn't get that format to work. I think it, it didn't ring true to me. And when I hit on this form, then I, um, then I felt something interesting, both at the sentence level and in a larger uh, level, I just felt like, Oh, this is, this is giving me a lens into something that, that feels like it's unlocking something uh, for the story. So that was a really great moment. But of course, even after that, it was like another couple of years of working with, you know, my editor, Tim O'Connell and um, also my agent, Julie bear, They, they really helped read a lot of drafts and, um, helped me just figure out what I was trying to do because I, I think uh, there, there was a lot going on in terms of the layers. You know, it's not a long book, but uh, there's, there's, some, there's some trickiness in terms of like, what is the reality of this world that Willis lives in? And getting that right was a really uh, crucial part of like, you know, I think making sure that readers could connect with what was going on.
1: Something that I noticed when I was reading it was the, like this the structure of the screenplay helps make it feel like a lived experience because it's literally action moving the story forward too. Did you, did that structure unlock things or did you like when doing those mini drafts? Did you kind of have an idea of what you were trying to do before the structure or was that like key to making to making that work out?
2: It's a good question. Um, the screenplay format was it unlocked things. It's like it unlocked a new world for me, uh, in which I then promptly got lost. <laughs> so I had to, it was, it was, I needed to go through that door, but once I got in, it wasn't like it all became clear. I then had to figure out sort of how it worked, but, but yeah, I, the, the, the real like breakthrough on that was, as you said, I could both have a story moving along and have Willis and the other characters feel like there's an official narrative. You know, there's this show that they live in called black and white, which is like a police procedural show. That's like law and order. And um, that's the story that kind of where they do their jobs and have their kind of identities, but there's a deeper self to, to all of these characters, you know, both for Willis and the other, you know, background Asians, and for all of the other characters as well, you know, including black and white. Everybody's kind of playing a role, a version of themselves that doesn't feel like it fits quite right. And the script really helps, I think, both visually and narratively um, for the reader to say, oh, here's the story on one track, and here's what's going on with the interior of these characters, you know, on another level, and and being able to quickly jump back and forth between those two was, you know, w- what we were really trying to get right when I was writing the book. So.
1: Also, I mean, the the um, flashbacks are really effective, just because you're so familiar with that in a movie format, um, to be able to go back to Willis's parents and learn about their, their experiences. Um, I was wondering, when you were doing research and working on this book, Were you, did you interview family members or anybody in your life to like hear about immigrant experiences? I'm not sure if your family immigrated, but um, if you did you like learn about personal stories? Did you research in that way?
2: I did. Um, my parents did, they're, they're immigrants from Taiwan and uh, they both came to the U.S. in the 60s. And growing up, I had heard a lot of their stories and really kind of internalized them. So a lot of what went into the book, at least in early drafts, started from seeds of either small autobi or small biographical bits about their experiences in the U.S. As, you know, very recently kind of, you know, um, having arrived here um, or they there was a feeling or some some moment that stuck out some sentence, you know, that, that my parents used to describe it. And I would kind of use that to to craft something fictional out of it. So a lot of the sections that deal with old Asian man and old Asian woman are based on their experiences. And then in the course of writing it, I did, uh, I guess, conduct a series of interviews with them. You know, I didn't exactly tell them what was happening. They knew it was for my book, but, uh, they didn't know exactly how they'd be used, which is probably a pretty scary thing. So I was literally kind of, you know, mining their, their memories. Um, and a lot of that stuff I actually didn't end up putting in the book, but it, it either refreshed my memory or was used in a more sort of background way to kind of draw out the picture of them.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, especially, I, I was reading an interview earlier about um, you working and how you, you had some like really nice things to say that I think are very <laughs> affirming for people like me who can't work for like 17 hours straight. Um, you were talking about, asking yourself a question and then not working and letting that percolate um, and then having uh, that manifest and work later. Um, so the non-working is as important as the working. Um, so I'm wondering if if anything, um, that sounds like probably some of the stuff that you got from your parents made its way into stuff sub- subconsciously maybe too.
2: Yeah, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> it's also just what I tell myself to justify all of my time wasting, but no, I, I think it's true. I, I think, I think, um, uh, you, you can't just count the hours where the cursor is blinking or where you're actually typing. Cause if I did, uh, that would be very depressing. It'd be like, Oh, it turns out I do all of my writing in about, uh, 30 minutes a, a week. And, uh, <laughs> like 90% of my productivity can be you know, traced to, you know, the time between, my first cup of coffee and lunch. And then that's it. Um, I have to believe that, yeah, that the subconscious is really working and the conscious it's all working. Um, And if, if I've gotten, you know, I don't know better, but if I've gotten sort of more attuned to like how to create the right conditions, you know, so that I can have my sort of brain working all the time or, or a lot of the time. Um, yeah, that's probably, if, if I've gotten better at anything, that's probably it.
1: I think it's a valuable lesson. Honestly, I think, I think often the answer is not work harder and punish yourself more. <laughs> so right. especially when it comes right. to writing probably. So, um, do you have an example of like a question you would ask yourself to like, to have the gears in motion in the background?
2: Yeah. Um, Often it's weird. I mean, a couple of things need to happen. I find like if I haven't, for instance, like if, if let's say I, I, I know that um, I, I have like the broad strokes of a story, but I haven't yet written down like the really key plot points um, or not plot points, but I guess really key moments that I know want that I want to have in there. Um, I find that just putting, just forcing myself to type a very, very bad version of something and just confronting how bad it is. Um, and knowing though that that exists somewhere I've, and and then kind of, um, crystallizing it, I guess, knowing that that's not the final format. I I find that that does, that is like step one in, in, um, I, I sometimes call it, uh, Tim, Tim O'Connor knows as I call it the negative one draft because it's two drafts away from being a first draft and it really takes the pressure off of it um and then specifically it might be something like okay I know that this is um you know this this paragraph really wants to be about um you know I, I want to write something about um uh about all of the roles that you know old Asian man has played, for instance, and I can't figure out exactly sort of the way to, to, you know, I I just want the best words in the best order. And I don't know how to do that yet. Um, I'll just literally like, you know, write the three or four things that I, that are kind of circulating in my head and just leave them there on the page and just sort of go away from it. And something just happens. I think once I've actually typed it, you know, the rudiments of what what I want in there, then I've, I've said, okay, here are the ingredients. Don't, don't, don't make up any more yet. And don't, don't question these, just live with these for a while. And if, if they're not quite right, then maybe you'll find that out. But, but yeah, I guess that that's really what it is is forcing myself to look at um, some scrap of it and, and then, and then just setting, not setting a timer, just s- sort of setting my brain to work on it.
1: I wanted to talk about some some of the research part again. Um, at the near the end of the book, there's a timeline of some of the laws that were put in place that prejudiced against Asian Americans. Um, and I wanted to know specifically which ones you didn't know about, if there were any that surprised you or did you learn anything that you weren't expecting when doing that research?
2: Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot. I, the, the specific things that I knew were the Chinese Exclusion Act of I think eighteen eighty two, and then the um, Naturalization Act of sixty five, which is actually when my my dad came, and a lot you know there's kind of a wave right at sixty five and, and a few years after, um, because they had literally lifted the U S had lifted these quotas, these very strict numerical quotas um, on immigration from countries, um, but other than that, I mean like. I didn't know about all of these, uh, you know, laws in various states um, prohibiting, you know, uh, Asian-Americans from, you know, owning land or having the right to sue or, um, I mean, I, I guess I knew about them in very broad strokes, but I, one, I didn't have a sense of how, how many there were and how early they went back, you know, um, in terms of, 19th century you know just just realizing that um this you know the i guess the the conflict between um whether or not you know asian americans were going to be accepted here you know stretched back almost 200 years basically um so yeah that 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 was really eye-opening for me
1: so one thing, my uh, my friend and colleague was really excited. I was going to talk to you because she's a really big fan of the book, and she gave me some que- some questions to ask you too, right. if that's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. One thing she wrote to me: did you, I'm not sure if you saw or read that um, the big profile um, about Stephen Young.
2: I did. I read. I read it.
1: She said um, this article about Stephen Young broke Asian Twitter last week. LOL. <laughs> the the article also had this quote um sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else but nobody else is thinking about you I feel like I saw this quote 14 million times on Instagram stories last week um so she basically just wanted to know like having read that and having like written your book did you like what were your impressions like did you feel like it resonated with what you were trying to get at in the book
2: it really did I mean I uh I was joking last week that if he had given that quote before I published the book, I might've just thrown the book away because it kind of nails it. Um, uh, Yeah. The sense of invisibility really. And I guess there's two sides to that quote and two sides to, I, you know, I think what Willis is going through or what I, I really wanted to explore with Willis Wu is on the one hand, as a generic Asian man, he's in the background. He has no, uh, voice. He can't, he doesn't have lines in the story. So no one's paying attention to him on the other hand. And this is, you know, the brilliance of Stephen yun's quote is uh, he's paying attention to everyone else. You know, that's his job uh, because he doesn't want to get in the way of the story. He also has an angle on the story that you don't normally see, you know, it's not the presentation angle that the camera is going to get or it's not the POV from either of the leads, black or white. It's this weird angle off to the side from the back where you can kind of see parts of the story that you maybe aren't intended to see, right? Because nobody cares what it looks like from random background Asian guys perspective. Um, So, yeah, I think in so many ways that his, you know, his line really nails a lot of what, you know, at the risk of speaking for or I'll speak for myself. I mean, to me, that's a feature of my consciousness, you know, that I really wanted to describe in this book is the sense of being very aware of um, not fitting in to the main narrative. Um, and, and sometimes wanting to hide, sometimes wanting to be seen, but always having this kind of anxiety about whether or not I fit at all.
1: I mean, think. That really very much comes through in the book, um, and it makes me think of. I've, well, I'll ask you. I, I know parts of the book I found like most powerful or most memorable, but um, do you have a favorite or moment in, in the book, or something that you're just you're proud of, or you, you're glad you included?
2: Um, well my favorite lines in the book are not my own. (laughs) They're the epigrams. Like, um, I think, you know, the the one that opens the book, Bonnie Tsui's line about, you know, Chinatown basically standing in for the ambiguous Asian everywhere. I think that's, um, I think that's really, it captured kind of the doubleness of, you know, this, this place, this interior Chinatown that I was trying to, you know, describe, which is, it's a place that literally physically exists, but it's also a place in the imagination. I think, you know, the cultural imagination, you know, um, of like, here's where we keep the Asian stuff, you know? And so you want an Asian story, then it it belongs here inside this place. Um, and so I really love that quote. Um, I, you know, maybe I'm just like sentimental, but the, the parts that I really wanted to make sure got in the book, uh, were the conversation between Willis and Phoebe, um, I think there's something about, you know, I'm a dad, I have a son and a daughter and, um, you know, there's just something about those communications that I've had with my kids that are some of the most sort of honest and, you know, sort of, uh, intimate tender moments that I've ever had, you know, um, where, they're saying things that sort of opened my eyes. And, you know, uh, I'm glad those made it in the book. I I think I struggled for a long time of like, how do I fit these in the book? And uh, we eventually figured it out, I think.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, I I mean, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time and being so thoughtful with your answers. And yeah, I just really appreciate it.
0: And now here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio.
3: Interior, Golden Palace Ever since you were a boy, you've dreamt of being Kung Fu guy. You are not Kung Fu guy. You are currently background oriental male, but you've been practicing. Maybe tomorrow will be the day. Interior, Golden Palace Ever since you were a boy, you've dreamt of being Kung Fu guy. You are not Kung Fu guy. You are currently Oriental guy Making a weird face But you've been practicing Maybe tomorrow will be the day Take what you can get Try to build a life A life at the margin Made from Bit parts Willis Wu Asian Actor Skills Kung Fu Moderate proficiency Fluent in accented English Able to do face of great shame on command. Resume repertoire. Disgraced son. Delivery guy. Silent henchman. Caught between two worlds. Guy who runs in and gets kicked in the face. Striving immigrant. Generic Asian man. Your mother has played in no particular order. Pretty oriental flower. Asiatic seductress. Young dragon lady Slightly less young dragon lady Restaurant hostess Girl with the almond eyes Beautiful maiden number one Dead beautiful maiden number one Old Asian woman Your father has been, at various times, Twin dragon Wizened chinaman Guy in a soiled t-shirt Inscrutable grocery owner In a soiled t-shirt Egg roll cook Young Asian man Sifu, the mysterious kung fu master Old Asian man Interior, Golden Palace, morning In the world of black and white Everyone starts out as generic Asian man Everyone who looks like you anyway Unless you're a woman in which case you start out as pretty asian woman you all work at golden palace formerly jade palace formerly palace of good fortune there's an aquarium in the front and cloudy tanks of rock crabs and two pound lobsters crawling over each other in the back laminated menus offer the lunch special which comes with a bowl of fluffy white rice and choice of soup egg drop or hot and sour a neon Tao sign blinks and buzzes behind the bar in the dimly lit space. A drop-ceiling room with lacquered ornate woodwork, or some imitation thereof. Everything simmering in a warm, seedy red glow, thrown off by the dollar store paper lanterns festooned above, many of them darkened by dead moths, the paper yellowing, ripped, curling in on itself. The bar is fully stocked with top-shelf spirits up top, middle-shelf liquor at eye level, And down at the bottom Happy hour shelf of booze That you will regret for sure The new thing everyone is excited about Is called the lychee margarita teeny, Which seems like a lot of flavors Not that you've had one They're 14 bucks Sometimes patrons leave a sip At the bottom of the glass And if you're quick While you go through the swinging door That separates the front of the house From the back You can have a taste You've seen some of the other Generic Asian men do it It's a risk though The director's always got an eye out, ready to fire someone for the smallest infraction. You wear the uniform white shirt, black pants, black slipper like shoes that have no traction whatsoever. Your haircut is not good, to say the least. Black and white always look good. A lot of it has to do with the light. They're the heroes. They get hero lighting, designed to hit their faces just right. Designed to hit White's face just right anyway. Someday you want the light to hit your face like that. To look like the hero. Or, for a moment, to actually be the hero. Roles. First, you have to work your way up. Starting from the bottom, it goes 5. Background Oriental Male 4. Dead Asian Man 3 generic asian man number three slash delivery guy two generic asian man number two slash waiter one generic asian man number one and then if you make it that far hardly anyone does you get stuck at number one for a while and hope and pray for the light to find you And then when it does, you'll have something to say. And when you say that something, it will come out just right and have everyone in black and white turning their heads saying, Wow, who is that? That is not just some generic Asian man. That is a star. Maybe not a real regular star. Let's not get crazy. We're talking about Chinatown here. But perhaps a very special guest star, which for your people is the ceiling, is the terminal, ultimate, exalted position for any Asian working in this world, the thing every Oriental male dreams of when he's in the background, trying to blend in kung fu guy kung fu guy is not like the other slots in the hierarchy there isn't always someone occupying the position as in whoever the top guy is at any given time that's the default guy who gets trotted out whenever there's kung fu to be done only a very special asian can be worthy of the title it takes years of dedication and sacrifice and after all that only a few have even a slim chance of making it Despite the odds, you all grew up training for this and only this. All the scrawny yellow boys up and down the block, dreaming the same dream.
0: Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit PenguinRandomHouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Erin Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.